Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report podcast with me, Norman Swan, and... With Tegan Taylor. Great to hear you. And you've got a story up later. What's it about? Well, we often think of the downside of antibiotics as being about creating drug-resistant superbugs, which is a problem, but it looks like they can also increase kids' individual risk of getting things like asthma and allergies. Well, that's coming up later. Plus, not getting too het up about sitting too much, new ways of treating a deadly cancer, and how to approve assessing how much heart risk you have in the future. If exercise was a drug, the pharmaceutical company would make a fortune. Better outcomes in cancer treatment and effective prevention of heart disease, diabetes, depression and dementia. The big question is, what's the dose of this drug? Well, last week, the World Health Organization released its latest guidelines on physical activity and sedentary behaviour and offers how much physical activity of what kind tailored to your age. Associate Professor Melody Ding of the University of Sydney School of Public Health has assessed the new guidelines and Melody's here to decode them for us. Welcome to the Health Report. Hello, Norman. Now, it seems to de-emphasise sitting. You know, we're talking about sitting being the new smoking. Well, we've debunked that on, um, on the Health Report before, but it does seem to de-emphasise a focus on sitting. Yes, this is actually the first time the WHO has introduced some sort of, we call it qualitative guideline in terms of sitting. So we provide generic guideline in terms of reducing sitting. But we don't provide a magic number in terms of, you know, you have to reduce your sitting number to certain hours a day. And in terms of um, sitting, I think it's important for us to understand that they actually interplay with physical activity. So the emerging evidence has been showing that for those who are extremely physically active, if they sit for a longer period of time, that seems to um, be less detrimental to health as compared with those who are not doing much physical activity. And for these people, reducing sitting might have provide potential like new revenue, uh, new avenue for um, reducing health risk. So, I mean, we, we had a story on maybe a year or two ago about how if you sit eight hours a day, if you actually fulfill the physical activity guidelines, you counteract the effect of sitting all day. As, lo- as long as they say it's, it's not in front of the television, presumably counteracting the effect of unhealthy food advertising. There has been a lot of um, back and forth with sitting evidence. So about 15 years ago, um, especially Australia was in the forefront of sedentary behavior research. At that time, researchers believed that sedentary behavior is considered um, an independent risk factor. So regardless of how much physical activity you do, um, if you sit a lot, that's going to be bad for your health. And then um, later on, people start to um, get into TV watching as um, a proxy for sitting. But for that one, we actually don't have a lot of evidence on that because, you know, people who tend to sit for long hours behind TV tend to be quite different and have other risk factors as compared with those who don't. So currently where the evidence is pointing at is exactly what I just mentioned. So um, physical activity for us remains the most important on our agenda. But for those who are not doing much physical activity, who are mostly inactive, reducing sitting um, might offer some additional benefits. But we have to, one thing we have to make it clear here is that physical activity, even if you do 30 minutes a day, for example, you, you get a lot of benefits. But in terms of reducing sitting, even for the ones who are most vulnerable, we have to reduce quite a 
a few hours a day. So if we compare the two, I would say that physical activity is definitely the more important one on the agenda here. Now, I don't know, do these guidelines address the importance of just getting off your bottom and doing something? Because it used to be said, I think Adrian Bowman, who's one of your colleagues, used to say that the biggest gain you can get from exercise is from doing nothing to doing something. Absolutely, that is correct. And this is actually one of the major um, changes from this um, WHO guideline 2020 from the one in 2010, because previously we emphasized more on continuous physical activity. So we have this magic number of more than 10 minutes bouts, but this one has been dropped for the new 2020 guidelines. So basically any amount of physical activity, even if it's just for one minute, 30 seconds, all add up throughout the day. And there has been a stronger emphasis on doing anything is doing is better than doing none because increasing evidence suggests that, you know, like what you just mentioned, we get the best improvement when we move people from doing nothing to doing something. But how good is the evidence for that? Is it, I mean, is just people putting their finger in the air and guessing it or have there been randomised trials? I mean, how, how, do, <laughs> how do they actually know these things? Because yeah, it seems to swing around. I mean, 20 years ago, if I was doing a story like this, it's exactly what you're saying now are the guidelines now. We seem to have been going, we go back 20 years and we go forward and it moves around. You can, you can forgive people for being a bit confused. Yes, that's exactly, um, I guess, a challenge that is faced by many research fields. What I can say is that we're the most confident um, in history because one of the reasons why we could confidently drop that 10 minutes continuous um, condition is because now we have much better technology for measuring physical activity. Previously, the 10 minutes was introduced because um, if you ask people to add up all, all these incidental activities you do for, you know, taking stairs for three flights and then walk to the coffee shop, people will not be able to um, report it. So they introduced this 10 minutes continuous so that it helped people recall their activity. So wearable, wearables have helped you with the data. Exactly. It's the wearables, the accelerometer, so, so we can... Let's yeah. just talk about the dose then, how much? You're 150 minutes minimum to 300 minutes, I mean, a week. Um, now, that, when you're talking about incidental exercise, is there a peak here where there's a maximum amount or more is always better? We usually say move more, sit less. So moving more um, is definitely better than doing less. But if you're but doing an hour a day, that's what, over 400 minutes a week. Um, is that an awful lot better than 300? So when we look at the risk reduction curve, we see huge reductions when people move from zero to, to something, like what we just mentioned. And then we see that um, we start to see the, the risk reduction leveling off between 150 and 300. So you still continue to get benefits if you move from 150 to 300. But it's not but a straight line. It's not straight lines, a curve linear relationship. So and how does it go with intensity? I noticed a paper just in the last couple of weeks suggesting that intensity does reduce death rates. Um, at least that was in the US population. That if you actually work harder, that's better too. So the current evidence on intensity is that um, for one thing that you, we need to remember, intensity is part of the overall volume at all. If we look at the physical activity guideline, we're talking about 150 minutes of moderate intensity or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity. So in a way that if you do more vigorous physical activity, it is more efficient in terms of achieving guidelines because you, you make more efforts, you need less. But there's additional evidence 
uh, implying that on top of the volumes, if you do a little bit more vigorous intensity physical activity, you might get a little bit more incremental gain in your health. But I think the emphasis is really any intensity of physical activity at any duration, just do more. And if you're getting on a bit, you're allowed to do less or not? When you're getting, I'm sorry? You're getting on a bit when you're older? Oh, yes. So the, the, the number that is being suggested as the threshold remains the same. So 150 to 300 minutes of moderate intensity. So that is about like brisk walking intensity um, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity. So it's just, the, are, it's just the intensity uh, that varies when you get older, if you get a bit... No, it's the same. It's the same recommendation in terms of intensity and, uh, and uh, the volume for older adults. The main difference for older adults is that we also recommend on top of aerobic physical activity, muscle strength, strengthening activity. We also recommend balance training for um, older adults. So that's the, the main difference there. Melody, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. We'll have a link to those guidelines on the Health Report's website. Associate Professor Melody Ding is at the University of Sydney's School of Public Health. This is RN's Health Report and I'm Norman Swan with Tegan Taylor. Now, if you have a child in your life, there's a decent chance they have an allergy, asthma or a skin condition like eczema. These have all been on the rise in recent decades. The question is why? Well, a new study is suggesting disruption to the microbiome from antibiotics might be raising the risk. Tegan, you've been looking at this study. Yeah, it's a really interesting big study and it has implications for parents trying to make the best medical decisions for their kids. And so basically it was published in Mayo Clinic Proceedings and it looked at all of the kids who were born over a nine-year period in a county in Minnesota in the US and they looked at the number of kids who had antibiotics in the first two years of life and it found that those who did were more likely than those who didn't to have certain conditions by the time they were 14. And those conditions were things like asthma, hay fever, obesity and overweight and even things like ADHD and learning dis disabilities and, like you said, um, eczema and celiac disease were also in the mix there. Uh, Martin Blazer from Rutgers University in the US, who was involved in the study, said there seemed to be a dose response with antibiotics and kids' disease risk. We also showed that the more courses of antibiotics that kids took, the more likely they were to develop a number of these conditions. And furthermore, if they got antibiotics in the first six months of life, for certain conditions, it was much worse than if they got it when they were a year or two years. So the timing was important. Professor Blazer was also involved in another study that looked at kids born by caesarean section. Again, those born by Caesar were more likely to have asthma than those born vaginally and therefore exposed to their mum's microbiome on the way out. The microbiome, of course, is the diverse colony of beneficial bacteria and other microbes that live on and in us. They play a vital role in gut health, helping us digest our food. But over recent years, studies have shown they involve almost every system in the body. Here's Martin Blazer again. We now know that the microbiome has lots of beneficial functions for humans. We also know that the microbiome early in life is really important because those microbes collectively are our partner in development, how our immunity develops, our metabolism and our cognition. Antibiotics can be life-saving, but they can also knock out the beneficial microbes that make up the microbiome. Also, pretty much as soon as we first developed antibiotics, bacteria began developing resistance to them, reducing their effectiveness. 
Antibiotic-resistant microbes have become an increasing concern in the last few decades as some infections that were previously relatively easy to treat have become less susceptible to antibiotics. So the driver to not over-treat with antibiotics has been one about the greater good, not contributing to resistance. Martin Blazer says his work shows it's also about protecting individuals. Doctors and parents have an almost magical view of antibiotics, that they are just fabulous drugs. But for children who just have very mild illness, there's a lot of evidence that they do not do any good. And now we're finding that potentially there's a cost to giving those. But with studies like this, how do we know whether it's the antibiotics that are driving this increase in disease? Maybe kids who are going to develop conditions like asthma are also more likely to need antibiotics in early life. Cheryl Jones, who is Professor of Paediatrics and Dean of the University of Sydney Medical School, says while this research can't prove that antibiotics cause these diseases, it does fit with previous research findings. Taking antibiotics when you don't need them can cause not only societal harm by increasing microorganisms with resistance to antibiotics, but also harm to the individual, either from perhaps altering the microbiome and all the associations that go with that, but also there can be just specific harms from the drug itself, including adverse reactions. We know that prescriptions are given. What we don't know is whether a child actually takes those antibiotics, but our prescribing practices have been that we have had higher rates of prescribing to children compared to other countries, such as, for example, Scandinavia. But when you're sitting in a doctor's practice or a hospital with your sick child, how do you know whether they should have antibiotics today or hold off because of the risk of other health conditions down the track? If you're offered a prescription, ask, do I need to have it? For antibiotic prescribers, this reinforces what, what is already known, that choose prescribing antibiotics widely and per our national guidelines. The first thing is to cut out unnecessary antibiotic prescriptions. And the second thing is it could be that every time a child gets some antibiotics that they really need, that we plan to do some kind of restoration. And my guess is that in terms of restoration, one size will not fit all. The kids are individual and some kids will need restoration A and some will need restoration B. Martin Blazer from Rutgers University ending that story from Tegan Taylor. Many experts think that too many people are put on medications for blood pressure and cholesterol unnecessarily, while others who really need them miss out. The reason is that unless your cholesterol or blood pressure levels are very high, what's much more important is your risk of a heart attack or stroke calculated by bringing together a variety of measures, including your gender and your age, maybe your family history. But even that misses people who need treatment and overtreats others, which is why the Baker Institute in Melbourne is trying to see if there's a better way through using your genetic profile. Professor Tom Warwick is director of the Baker. Welcome back to the Health Report, Tom. Hi, Norm. Thank you. Just how inadequate are the existing risk tools, or so-called absolute risk tools? Well, they have limitations. If they are um, clearly designate high risk, then that's a, a reason to, for example, start statins and, and various other preventions. If they're low risk, it's very reassuring. But there's a lot of people in the middle at the so-called intermediate risk, and that's where uh, we think that other things such as the polygenic risk score or um, coronary calcium scoring can be helpful. Um, 
So you and I have talked about the coronary calcium score before, but mm. what are you yeah. proposing in this study that you're about to embark on? Well, over the last few years, we've been very interested in developing a, a polygenic risk score. That's to say a, a score that accounts for really thousands of genes that could contribute to coronary disease. And uh, our notion with this is really very similar to what we've done with using um, coronary calcium scoring, that we will divide the intermediate risk group into people who are actually low risk and people who are at high risk in order to treat them more effectively. But how do you find out, how do you assess this polygenic risk score? I mean, is this, we talked about, I think last week on the health report, something called a genome-wide association study mm. where you Hmm. looking at 700,000 landmarks around people's genomes and that you know they're roughly associated with certain genes or not. Is that what you're talking about? That, that is right. Yeah, that's right. So the work that's been done with this is to identify these uh, these these landmarks, as you call them. Um, uh, in fact, in this particular score, there's over 110,000 of them um, for each individual. And um, we've validated this in, in groups where blood has been collected in the past and, and we can, accept, we can uh, determine what their, their genetic profile is and then match it with subsequent outcomes. So that process of validation has been done now in multiple data sets. And what's really exciting about this now is that we're applying it prospectively uh, to people um, in middle age where some additional um, guidance is required for, for treatment. So you wanted to test this idea on a thousand volunteers from Victoria? That's correct. So uh, we have just launched this today and um, these people will have a polygenic risk score. They'll also have a CT scan to identify the presence of, of calcium and if that is present then a, a full CT coronary angiogram. We will um, link the results of the polygenic risk score with the CT results and also with the burden of atherosclerosis. Um, and we'll also do a metabolic uh, risk score, which will give us more information about environmental stimuli that lie on top of the genetic makeup of the individual. So after that, we're hopefully ready for a short time with uh, polygenic risk scores, if indeed it works out. And we'll have the link if you want to volunteer um, from if you live in Melbourne uh, on the Health Reports website. Moving, changing subject now, you've been looking at this at the strain, literally, that cancer mm. chemotherapy puts on the heart. Mm. Yeah, we... Um uh, we've just published really a, what we think is a, a, a very significant paper in, in terms of surveillance of people who have had cancer chemotherapy. Some cancer treatments have got a, an adverse effect on the heart muscle and um, in combination with various other stimuli for heart failure such as, um, such as high blood pressure and, and overweight and diabetes uh, can lead to heart failure um, often in later life. Uh, so you could have chemotherapy earlier in life but heart, an increased risk of heart failure maybe 20 years later. Yeah, that is the concern. Uh, you know, historically, this has been something that has been a, a matter of concern with anthracyclines. These are, are, are chemicals that are less used in oncology, although still very valuable. But um, cardiac toxicity seems to be um, a, a problem with some of the newer small molecules, tyrosine kinase inhibitors and so on, that have been developed for several cancers. So this problem of cardiac toxicity is not really a story about anthracyclines alone. It's a story about multiple treatments. So you're using this new measure on echocardiography, ultrasound of the heart. So the one that they used before was ejection fraction, which is really mm. the power of the heart to you know, eject blood from the left ventricle. And now you're looking at how well the heart 
heart muscle lengthens and, and contracts. So looking at that as a measure of, of, cardi- of myocardial strain, what did, how did it shape up in terms of finding the strain of chemotherapy? Yeah, well, uh, this, this is a more sensitive marker than ejection fraction. I mean, the trouble with ejection fraction is that it's its variability from one test to the next. And of course, in terms of surveillance of people having chemotherapy, that's something that needs to be done repeatedly. So the reliability of the test is terribly important. So um, we have done several observational studies where we've tracked the response to um, uh, the strain response and then seen how people have done. But this is the first randomized trial. Um, so we randomized people to guidance by strain or guidance by ejection fraction. And um, we found that the use of the strain identified more people as having a problem. We then responded to that by giving them medications to protect the heart muscle. And in the end, we had fewer uh, people with impairment of cardiac function than we did with the conventional strategy. Over what sort of period of time? Over a year of follow-up so far. So the study will continue over the next few years because it is possible that the heart will spontaneously recover and that we don't need to um, worry about this as, as much as we have done. Um, but for the reason why the one-year response is important is that some of these drugs, such as trastuzumab, commonly used for the treatment of breast cancer, particular sorts of breast cancer, are, are, are given over many months, uh, up to a year. And so um, understanding how well each of the tools perform over a year is very relevant. And what sort of cardioprotective therapy can you give? So let's say you're a woman. I mean, these are not mm. old drugs. These are modern drugs mm. uh, for, say, mm. breast cancer. Mm. What can you do to protect the heart if you are on one of these monoclonal antibodies which are targeted against the, the breast cancer? Yeah, so um, I, I, I think there's several drugs that we use um, quite widely for, for protection of the heart muscle, for example, in after heart attacks and in people with diabetes and various other situations. So they're the ACE inhibitors and beta blockers. Um, in addition to, and that's what we used in this particular trial, and, um, and there have been some smaller studies just uh, examining the response to those that indicate that they're, they're beneficial. And I think there's an, a number of potential other interventions, um, such as statins and some of the newer anti-diabetic drugs that may have a a beneficial metabolic effect on the heart muscle to, to prevent it from being damaged. And just briefly, if somebody's listening to this and they're undergoing chemotherapy and they want to talk to their oncologist about getting this sort of test done, this uh, mm. ultrasound, what's the name of it? It's called myocardial strain. And um, uh, strain is um, called strain because it's a fundamental property of, of matter. As, as you apply a force to it, it deforms, and that force is that deformation is called strain. Um, and that's available really on, on all modern echo machines. Um, its uptake in cardiology practices is increasing, and, um, and it's, it is very widely available. Great. Well, go, go off and annoy your oncologist. Professor Tom Mark, <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thank you, Colin. Tom is director of the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne. We're about to annoy another oncologist now. And talking, we're, talk, we're actually focusing on this targeted therapy, but for a different reason. The commonest cause of cancer death in Australia is lung cancer, and the vast majority of malignant lung tumours are what's called non-small cell lung cancers. Now, that's a diagnosis made by a pathologist looking at a biopsy through a microscope. But if you go down to even tinier detail, down to the level of molecules in a tumour, non-small cell lung cancer turns out to be a group of cancers – 
defined by different molecular patterns. And some of these are sensitive to these new targeted medications, one of which we're just talking about with Tom. But not all these targeted drugs are equal, which has been reinforced by a trial just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. One of the senior investigators was Professor Ben Solomon of the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Ben. Thanks. Uh, thanks very much, Norman, for having me. So I hope all your patients are getting the myocardial strain measure, aren't they? Uh, certainly ejection fractions, but we might need to look at strain. Yeah, move on from the health report. So what's this subgroup of lung cancer you're looking at? Because so, this, is, this is one that affects, that's not smoking related, it's more common in women and it probably is on the rise. Exactly. So as, as you pointed out, um, we, we no longer think of lung cancer as just one disease. And this particular subset um, is driven by a molecule called the anaplastic lymphoma kinase, or ALK. And this gene gets disrupted in about 4 or 5% of um, patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And as you mentioned, they tend to be non-smokers and often younger patients. The median age is 50, so, so we see many patients in their 20s, 30s and 40s diagnosed with this type of lung cancer. And treating, targeting this abnormality, this genetic abnormality, has improved things a lot over time compared to chemotherapy before we get to this particular trial. Absolutely. So, so this is an example of um, what we call personalised medicine or precision medicine. I know you've talked about it many times on the show before. But we knew that um, before we were able to target this, uh, this gene, outcomes were pretty similar. to We, we treated everyone the same way and outcomes were we're pretty poor with uh, median survivals of less than one year for, for patients. But the, um, the use of these um, of, of oral uh, drugs that target ALK uh, really has improved, uh, improved outcomes with, with survivals now expected in, the year, in, in, the, in many years. And actually. this particular study was the standard drug versus a newer one, and you got even better results. That's right. So the standard uh, drug was a first-in-class ALK inhibitor called crizotinib, and we previously showed that um, outcomes are much better than chemotherapy. And in this um, new trial, we used a newer generation, new, newer generation um, uh, compound called lorlatinib. This is also a small molecule tyrosine kinase inhibitor, but it's designed um, to work against mutations that make um, tumors resistant to earlier drugs like risotinib. And it's also designed to get into the brain, which is, um, which is really important uh, um, as brain metastases are a major problem for patients with lung cancer. And how advanced was the lung cancer in the people in this trial? So the, all the patients had advanced or metastatic lung cancer, and about a quarter of patients had brain metastases. So this was a really difficult-to-treat group. That's right, yeah. And how much more benefit did they get? So we saw that, um, so in this uh, study, which uh, was a randomized study, we saw that um, uh, the response rate was higher and that there was a 72% reduction in the risk of progression. So um, the, the newer drug, the newer generation drug, was able to control cancers for longer. And um, I think just as importantly, there was a 93% reduction in the risk of progression in the brain suggesting that uh, not only could it um, uh, shrink existing brain metastases, but it could also um, prevent um, the formation of new brain metastases. And the complication rate? 
Yeah, so that's interesting. All these drugs, as as we uh, were talking about, as you were talking about in the earlier session, have potential side effects. And uh, this drug is generally well tolerated, but it has some interesting um, side effects, um, including uh, hypercholesterolemia and hyperlipidemia, which we saw in uh, the majority of patients. So they, they might tended need, they might need to be so on statins as well. Absolutely. Most patients needed to be on statins. Um, we didn't, so these patients, interestingly, did have serial um, echocardiograms, and we didn't notice any alterations in heart function, although it's early and, um, uh, and longer follow-ups needed with respect to cardiovascular outcomes. So this drug's not used, is not, is not approved for first-line treatment in Australia, though, is it? It's not approved for first-line treatment, but as of August this year, it was approved for patients whose disease had progressed on earlier generation compounds. But this trial tells us that it might be best to use your best drug first. And it's not cheap, but that's another story. Ben, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Norman. Professor Ben Solomon is a medical oncologist at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Two fascinating stories on cancer there, Tegan. Yeah, really life-changing for people in the future, I think. Yeah, at a considerable cost, though. Those, these drugs are not cheap. Mm. Anyway, let's get on to people's questions. Just to remind you, the email address to send in your questions or comments is healthreport at abc.net.au, and lots are coming in. I've got some really good ones for you today, Norman. I okay. can't wait to get into them. Okay, I've got a migraine already, I think. <laughs> well, buckle up, because Lorna says she has severe chronic depression that's treatment-resistant. She's tried all sorts of things, including a special diets. At least five different therapists have been tried over the years, differing levels of impact. Everything's worked for a while, but it ultimately fails. Anyway, that's the background to the fact that she went to see a massage therapist for some hip pain. And the massage therapist worked out some of the kinks. And when she returned a week later, she told him about the emotional upwelling that this massage seemed to cause. And he told me that there's been some psychologists who've done some work into this and said that the body and particularly the pelvis and hips can hold on to our emotional trauma. And Lorna was really intrigued by this idea and wondered what the current thinking was on this idea of somatic pain, pain which comes from the mind rather than from a localised injury, and whether things like massage or other physical therapy can be helpful in the treatment of depression. So, I mean, really important questions there. And we get confused about this type of story that you often hear from people because we tend to think that the mind and the body are separate. It comes from old philosophy, you know, it's Descartes, Cartesian philosophy, which is, you know, there's a mind-body split. There's no mind-body split. The mind and the body are one. What happens in the body affects the mind and what happens in the mind affects the body. And it's an intricate relationship that is not well understood. There's some resistance to this sometimes because you think, oh, well, you're telling me that my problem's all in my head and mm. you're saying it's psychosomatic and you're blaming, you know, it's stigmatising me. But in fact, it's a very different kind of story, which is actually quite uplifting in many ways, which is that, I mean, you were talking earlier in the programme, Tegan, about the microbiome. There's clear evidence that the sorts of bugs you have in the bowel can affect your mood. And it's because the receptors and neurochemicals that are used in the bowel are reprised in the brain. They, they kind of mirror each other. And therefore, it's not a great surprise that things that happen in the bowel can affect the brain. And this notion of pain, well, it's not a notion, this is a real situation of pain, 
is about perception. There's no measure of pain. You can't just stick a needle in somebody and measure how much pain they are. It's on trust and it's perception. And some people can tolerate injuries, for example, that other people would be screaming about and not require treatment and other people require it at a different level. In the same person, you could experience exactly the same injury at different times of your life. And when you're under a lot of stress and you've had some life-changing events, somebody dying or losing your job, you will experience pain in a different way. People of different cultures experience pain in a different way. And it's this intricate relationship, not just with pain, but other things. So coming back to Lorna, there's no question that there's a relationship between what happens in your physical body and your mood. We again today had a story about exercise. What we didn't get onto with Melody Ding was the influence of exercise on mood. And there's quite good evidence that reasonably intense exercise can elevate your mood. Nobody really understands why. It could be due to effects on serotonin or opioid receptors or something like that. So what's happened here? You've had massage. Perhaps that massage is quite painful and quite strenuous. And that maybe that you've, you've stimulated the endorphins in the brain and you've got that effect. You could go on forever about trying to say, what is the mechanism here? But Tegan, I'm, I'm reminded of, a, of an interview I did a few years ago with somebody who was, uh, studied medications. And I asked him, I, I, I can't remember what the story exactly was, but I asked him the question, well, what's the mechanism for this drug working? And he said, well, I haven't got a clue, nor do I care. You know, in a randomized controlled trial, I found that this drug works. And I could spend a lot of time explaining to you some fancy mechanism, but the reality is for most drugs, we actually don't really understand the mechanism fully. But if it works, it works. So if you've got that attitude towards medications, why shouldn't you have that towards massage therapy or physical therapy? If it works, you could probably explain it and you can find your own reason for it. For me, I wouldn't use the description of holding on to your emotional trauma because you've got some pelvic pain, but you know, if it works, it works. And I don't think you need to believe in the explanation to believe that it works for you. So I'm really... In summary, what I'm saying is there are different routes to getting better from problems. And depression, for example, severe resistant depression is very real, difficult to treat. And many people who have that have to find different routes towards getting better. Vigorous massage, physical therapy, physical activity, as well as medications and psychotherapy, all those things have to go together and you've got to find your own mix because it is personalised. Like you said before about personalised medicine, there's no one size fits all, is there? And if physical therapy is what works for someone like Lorna, then that's great. That's absolutely right. And programs like ours don't help much because we just <laughs> t- talked about targeted therapy for cancer, which is, it's unlikely that pelvic massage is actually going to help you with cancer. You want the, the drugs and the lights and the things that go ping, but you may actually want massage therapy and physical therapy to help with everything else that goes around the cancer, which will have an influence on the cancer as well well and they will be particular to you. Another thorny one for you Norman from Mukti who says all my life I've had signs of inflammation despite having a very anti-inflammatory diet habits and lifestyle generally. Several years ago they took a genetic test for MTHFR 
basically people say that this it's a gene polymorphism, which I'll let you explain in a bit more detail, but some people say it's not a thing. Mukti's asking, is it a thing? And could it be a contributor to the depression, endometriosis and gut health that we spoke about in a recent episode? MTHFR is a gene that's involved in folate metabolism. It's grossly over-tested in Australia. A couple of Western Australian genetic researchers did an analysis of this. There's only a small set of circumstances where it's valid to do an MTHFR, but there are complementary therapists around the place sending people off for MTHFR tests and then putting you on a very particular diet in relation to the MTHFR, which they believe is particular to your genetic profile. And I can't give... Mukti, any specific advice? You've got to do what your doctor and your therapists tell you to do. But what I would warn people listening is that there are some people out there in Australia doing MTHFR tests on people, over-interpreting the results, putting people on quite restrictive diets without much benefit. So it's not a thing in my mind. It is probably for some people, but I'm not giving specific advice to Mukti on this. But, you know, watch this space because I think it is a, it is a problem. Maybe we should so, do a story on it, Tegan. Yeah, it's, so it's a, it's a variant within a gene, but there's no clear evidence that it, it does anything of significance. I think there, in, in a small subgroup of people there is, but it's, it, it's a small subgroup, much smaller than the number of people who are actually having it done and having action taken as a result. Well, I'll give you a slightly easier one now, Norman. This one's from Petrina asking, and I'm assuming that this is in reference to some of the vaccines that are coming, hopefully, down the pipeline for the new coronavirus. How does messenger RNA function in nature and in us? Well, why don't you answer that one, Tegan? Well, RNA is a bit like DNA, except it's a simpler version of it. And the messenger RNA that's in, well, it's in cells, but it's also in the vaccine, basically sends a genetic message into the cell that tells it to do something. And in the case of uh, some of the vaccines that are coming down the pipeline, it's telling your cell to build the spike protein from the outside of the virus by itself so that then it can recognise that and develop antibodies against it. So it's a tricky way of getting your body to both manufacture and then develop a resistance to something that when it encounters it again in the form of the actual virus, it knows how to fight it. And in nature, what happens is, just to add to that, is that imagine a cell, so you've got something encapsulated in you know, shrink wrap, and within that you've got another part encapsulated in shrink wrap, that's called the nucleus. And inside the nucleus are all our genes, not all our genes, because there are some genes and things called mitochondria in the soup of the cell outside the nucleus. But you've got your DNA, all your genes and your chromosomes inside the nucleus. Now, they need to convey messages into the soup of the cell because the soup of the cell is where things called ribosomes make the proteins by which we live and exist. But the chromosomes are stuck inside the nucleus. They're not swilling around the soup. So they've actually got to be able to send a message to the ribosomes to manufacture these proteins. So what this mRNA does is it goes ching, 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 ching. It reads off the DNA code and then spins off in small parcels and then manages to get out of the nucleus into the soup to the ribosomes to say, here's the message. And then the ribosome reads that off and starts producing the protein. And as you quite rightly say, Tegan, what's happening with the vaccine is they're artificially putting in their mRNA with an abnormal message, which is to produce the spike protein, which the ribosomes are totally ignorant that it's an abnormal message and dutifully uh, reproduce it. 
Look at us. We should be science communicators. No, no, it's too hard. <laughs> One more question for you, Norman, from Jane. She's considering having podiatric surgery, a colectomy, as a preventative measure to address the effect of something called hallux rigidis, which I'll let you explain, Norman. She understands that podiatric surgery is well accepted in the US. What about in Australia with a fellow of the Australasian College of Podiatric Surgeons? Is that safe? So Jane's got a problem called hallux rigidus, which is actually arthritis of the joint in your big toe where the big toe kind of meets your foot. And it can be really quite painful, often help, affects people in their 50s and really can affect your walking and, and, and really be a problem. It's, it's very different from hammer toe, although the reason that it can look a little bit like hammer toe is that you get this accumulation of bone around it, partly due to the inflammation. I'm not quite sure. Now, there are various ways of treating this using insoles, uh, changing the shape of your shoes, etc., etc. Now, some of those work and some of those don't work. And then when they don't work, people are, you know, are looking at surgery. And the surgery that Jane's looking at is called colectomy. And this is where they shave off the bone around this joint so that the joint can move more freely because the bone spurs around the joint stop it moving freely and make it much stiffer and more painful than otherwise is. So there's never been a randomised trial of colectomy like there hasn't been a randomised trial of many operations. So this isn't just a surgery that podiatrists do, orthopaedic surgeons do this operation as well. And then there are more advanced operations, not more advanced, but more traumatic operations for the foot, which involve seizing up the joint altogether. So there is some good evidence that maybe 50 or 60% of people who have a colectomy do benefit from it, and they can get back to normal gait. And there is a minimally invasive way of doing it without having to make a big incision. What I can answer, Jane, is you know, the relative safety or effectiveness of whether you go to an orthopaedic surgeon to get this done or you go to a podiatrist to have this done. And probably what you should be doing is asking the same question of both, is how many of these have you done? What is your complication rate? Because there are complications here, which are about infection. What is your success rate? And if they start saying 90%, I'd ring a few bells because the studies I've looked at with colectomy, it is a successful operation, but it's around the 60 or 70% level, sometimes 50%. It's certainly not at the 90%. So if somebody says, oh, it's marvellous. Every single person I've operated on get a benefit. Then go and find somebody else, whether they're an orthopaedic surgeon or a podiatrist, because the honest answer is not everybody benefits, but some do. And have you got a patient, you know, somebody that I can talk to who's had it done and get a second opinion? Go to a podiatrist to have, you know, have the opinion. Go to an orthopaedic surgeon to have an opinion. And I'm sure there's some excellent podiatrists who are good at doing this sort of surgery. More major surgery, I'd probably be a bit more reserved because orthopaedic surgery, you know, I just would be more reserved about going to a podiatrist for some major surgery on your foot. But this is a, is a relatively straightforward operation. But you really want to be careful and you want to know what training you've had, how many of these operations they've done, how many they do each year, because you've got to be doing quite a few each year. And it's quite possible podiatrists be excellent at this if they're just doing this particular surgery and that's all they do. And then the question will be how they anaesthetise, because it can be done under local or it can be done under general. And your preference there, I would suspect, I actually don't know whether podiatrists would do this with an anaesthetist and a general anaesthetic or just do it with local. That may change your preference as well. 
And the other question that you often mention, Norman, which always sticks in my head is, what happens if I don't have this treatment? That's right. And for a lot of orthopaedic operations, whether it's a podiatrist or an orthopaedic surgeon doing it, it's got to be bad enough in many ways to merit it because none of them will be perfect. You go for a, a knee replacement. Now, if your knee's not that bad, the knee replacement is not a perfect operation. You will be left with some disability and some pain. So if you've not had very much beforehand, you're going to be disappointed by that surgery. Whereas if you've had a lot and you're really disabled, it's a great operation. And similarly in the foot and ankle, when you're having those operations, if you're really disabled, you aren't able to move around, you're not able to get enough exercise, then you probably do need it and you will benefit, particularly if it loosens up the foot. So essentially you've got to know how how bad it is. That's why talking to a few people who've had it done helps because they'll tell you how long it takes to get better. You know, it's things like shoulder surgery. Shoulder surgery is great surgery with a good surgeon, but it takes a long time to rehabilitate well from shoulder surgery. So it's got to be pretty bad to make it worth having uh, rather than just trying some physiotherapy first. Right. Well, that's all we've got for you from the mailbag today, Norman. But listeners, if you want to ask us a question, email us, healthreport at abc.net.au. And we'll see you next week. See you then.